Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I tweeted a little earlier this week... You'll forgive me if I suggest the Prime Minister inform Canadians why his government so enthusiastically engaged the services of Leith Maroof. This is not an oops moment. An entire government leadership cannot possibly have been clueless as to who and what Maroof is. And we know that he is a racist and his CMAC organization uh, it consisted of he and his wife. And uh, when the Prime Minister says they're going to investigate and make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again, that they don't slip through the cracks, that another Maroof doesn't slip through the cracks. We're not talking about cracks here. The barn door was wide open. And the various ministries that employed or provided funding for Maroof, they kind of were quiet when we, didn't they? They were very quiet when the word came out about who he is and what he's uh, said and what he's written. We'll talk about that uh, shortly with Michael Geist, professor at the University of Ottawa, who was taken to task by a Liberal MP who's the Parliamentary Secretary to the Heritage Minister when Professor Geist tweeted that he's the grandson of Holocaust survivors and asked if it would be too much to expect the Heritage Minister to say something, anything, about his department funding a virulent anti-Semite. Joining us on the program is Melissa Lansman, Conservative Member of Parliament in the Toronto area. Uh, MP Lansman had her own moment with Mr. Trudeau not so long ago on the issue of uh, conservative support. Melissa, thank you for uh, coming on the program. What does Maroof and CMAX speak to as far as you're concerned? Look, I, thanks for having me, first of all. And I think over and over again, we see the, the pattern from the Liberals, a supposed concern about racism um, when it's put into, you know, fancy headlines and conferences and, uh, and uh, TV ads. And there's a painful lack of substance when it really, really matters. And in this case, I think the response from the government, like you mentioned, was the most egregious thing about the scandal itself, because we heard nothing, silence for days. Even when they knew what was happening, they knew that they gave money to an anti-Semite and their version of racism doesn't include anti-Semitism. That's the problem. And the organization, CMAC, and they, uh, they were hired to speak to Canadian broadcasters, among others. Uh, when, uh, when one of the ministers, and I, I, I don't know if it was Minister Husson, but one of them said he wasn't aware of uh, the situation, the reality of the organization. How can you not be aware when it's, uh, when it's, when it's um, um, uh, Maroof and his wife are, are, the, are the entire organization? And it's easy to find what the man has written and said. And it's not just anti-Semitic rantings. There have been other uh, rantings, racist and, and uh, anti-societal rantings from this guy. Yeah, look, I think it's time to get to the bottom of the fiasco. Who knew what when? We know that there was one single liberal member of parliament who had said that he informed the minister. That's the that's a guy named Anthony Housefather. He's from the Montreal area. He warned the minister about this. So they knew that this was happening. And we're not just talking about 133,000. We're not just talking about maybe somebody not doing their due diligence due to a lack of staffing or COVID or whatever you want to blame. They have given almost a half a million dollars to this organization, which you yourself say is the same thing. The organization is this man. It is Lake Maroof. 
It really is stunning that they could come up, get $600,000 or thereabouts from from the Canadian government, given who they are. I'm looking at a tweet from Michael Levitt, who is a former liberal member of parliament. He's the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center um, now and uh, for Holocaust studies. Looking back on events over the last week with regards to Maroof affair, I'm utterly disheartened. disheartened. Taking a stand against anti-Semitism should be a given, and yet so few of my former liberal colleagues have done so. This truly hurts. Jewish MPs shouldn't be left to call this out alone. And this makes me wonder why why the silence, why the, re- why the reluctance or outright refusal to really pursue this in a very public way. Yeah, look, I, again, I think it's, it's more than just politics. And I would, you know, I would ask some real questions about maybe why somebody like Michael Levitt, who has always called this out, decided, you know, to, to leave politics a bit earlier than, uh, than he was ever asked to leave. In fact, he was never asked to, to leave. Uh, he resigned. I, I don't have to explain the irony of an anti-racist consultant spewing uh, the most vitriolic garbage that is so easy to find on the Internet. I don't have to explain why, uh, why for, for, for whatever reason, we heard nothing uh, for days and days. And apparently the government knew this for, you know, we don't know how long, but it could be months. It could be half a year. That's what we want to get to the bottom of. We're going to use the Heritage Committee, hopefully to uh, to bring the minister and everybody uh, around him. But it is truly disappointing that nobody from cabinet, uh, not one MP, uh, and it took days for the prime minister to uh, to to address it. We only heard uh, we only heard a denouncement of any of this uh, after the prime minister spoke, and it took way too long uh, for for people to be comfortable with the government funding a racist anti-racist trainer. And Maroof is still sniping at this country, calling us apartheid. He's, well, I mean, look, the organization, I, I you know, I think, I, I think made it very clear that they didn't think that this was a problem. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad the government finally sees this as a problem. But I think the, the Jewish community, uh, you know, he made some comments about the black community, those in the indigenous community should ask some questions about what's considered uh, racism. Well, why did nobody who was actually trained uh, by this guy uh, say anything? How long did they know? How does a guy like this get funding? There are so many unanswered questions. You can't just sweep this one under the rug because it is exactly a product of the division that the prime minister has been driving in this country and the identity politics that he plays when it's convenient for him. So in February, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, there was a lot of thinking that it would last 72 hours. That within three days, Putin's troops would be in Kiev. Well, six months in the uh, Ukrainians, as you know, are fighting tremendously well and in some cases are pushing the Russians back and uh, where this is going to wind up. A lot of people are saying it's going to be a stalemate war that will drag on. But the Ukrainians believe that they have a very good opportunity to uh, force Putin back. And uh, if you look at the losses they're experiencing, there are reports today almost 50,000 Russian troops killed. Um, that's a much higher number than they lost in Afghanistan in the 80s. Over 2,000 tanks destroyed, over 200 military aircraft destroyed. This is Russian. So eventually the pressure, I think, is going to build on, uh, on Putin if it isn't already. But what exactly is going on? 
in Ukraine. And back with us on the program to speak about this is uh, Ambassador Alexander Sherba. He's the former Ukraine ambassador to Austria. He's the author of Ukraine versus Darkness on Diplomatic Thoughts. Ambassador, good to have you back with us. Thank you for having me. So the sixth month of war, Ambassador Sherba, again, experts said three days and the Russians will be in Kiev. So how is the Ukrainian military holding up? And we do hear about significant counterattacks by Ukrainian forces against the Russians. Well, uh, a lot in this war is about the spirit. Uh, and the spirit of our army, of our soldiers, is just amazing. In the beginning uh, of, uh, of the war in February, in the beginning of the active phase of the war in February, uh, it was all about, you know, uh, our, you know, soldiers uh, fighting smart and fighting with uh, absolute understanding uh, that uh, uh, these plans of Moscow must be thwarted. Uh, because otherwise uh, there would be no Ukraine, no Ukrainian identity, no Ukrainian language. But with the flow of time, uh, this spirit of our troops and this knowledge, what we fight for, this is something that Russians have none uh, of, uh, because they, they mostly they are confused why they are on the foreign land for some reason defending Russia. Uh, but with the time, uh, we also had uh, more uh, weapons from the West. And this uh, gave us uh, the possibility not only to stop uh, the, this enormous, huge army, uh, but also uh, to start pushing back, which is happening right now, uh, first of all, in Kherson uh, Oblast. Uh, it will be a long uh, fight still because... Uh, Blitzkrieg is not uh, the tactic of Ukrainian army, but uh, it feels like uh, we have the, the initiative right now uh, in this war. We have the we are in the driver's driver's seat, and this is good news for us. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it, it's going to be very difficult for Putin if, in fact, almost 50,000 Russian troops have been killed, which, again, is a much higher number than the Soviets lost in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and he's losing a great deal of equipment. Eventually, the Russian people, and I understand there is a, there is a resistance to Putin, even though it can, be, it can result in significant prison time if you do resist publicly, but ultimately, I think uh, the Russian, uh, Russian population will hopefully see what they have in this guy. Do you have any sense that there's going to be sufficient pushback in the Russian population against Putin? Well, it's a very good and a very difficult question because uh, Putin was uh, preparing his population for this war uh, for a decade, maybe longer. Uh, he had much more time than, for instance, Hitler had for preparing Germans for World War II, um, and uh, he was feeding Russian nation uh, two things, uh, militarism and imperialism. And if people are fed this, uh, war becomes uh, uh, normality for them, you know, uh, normal reality. Um, so uh, they... Uh, they uh, are glad. Still, a uh, big part of Russians are enjoying this war. They are enjoying the suffering of Ukrainians. They see uh, this war as a kind of 
you know, uh, Russia being back, Russia being feared, uh, Russia being respected throughout the world. But uh, we see that uh, if the number uh, of uh, Russians who were enthusiastic about this war uh, uh, in May was uh, 80%, now it's less than 50%. So things are not moving in the direction Putin would be wishing for. And first of all, um, even those feeling positive about this war, Russians, they uh, are not uh, ready to go and fight. Uh, mostly if uh, anybody volunteers for this war, it's either uh, people who want to uh, make some money or um, it's uh, people above uh, 50 years old uh, who are somehow feeling uh, nostalgic about the uh, Soviet times, and they are not the best soldiers. No, they're not. And certainly there is some nostalgia for the Soviet Union with the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev, although he was essentially the architect of the dissolution of the USSR. Ambassador, uh, are you concerned, and you and I have talked about this before, but the developments continue and the time moves on. Do you worry about Western nations' commitment to Ukraine and particularly the maintaining of sanctions against Russia? You know, now we have Nord Stream 1, the pipeline, remaining shut beyond the so-called three days of maintenance that was scheduled, no Russian gas flowing through the pipeline to Germany. Do you believe Russia that it's an oil leak which is causing the continued closing of the pipeline? Uh, or do you think that they're manipulating and using energy as a, as a weapon against uh, against Europe? And do you, again, let me bring this full circle, do you have concerns about the uh, determination and the commitment of Western nations to the sanctions against Russia? About the uh, pipelines, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, about the dependence on Russian gas. Uh, this, uh, right now, uh, changing this course, uh, it would uh, take changing the government, uh, because this government in Germany and in Austria, uh, the countries that weren't the most principled, unfortunately, and toughest on, on Russia in the last uh, decade, they made their commitment. They won't uh, uh, back off on that commitment. And quite frankly, when I look in, at Germany, the um, uh, opposition party, even if this uh, government, the, the government of Olaf Scholz, would be somehow, you know, toppled, um, the opposition is even tougher on Russia. So uh, I'm not that concerned about Germany. Of course, if things go uh, very much uh, um, off rail, so to say, then um, something can happen. For instance, if uh, Germans uh, take to the streets and uh, demand uh, that uh, Ukraine is thrown under the bus and uh, Germany first and uh, things like that, then probably something would be happening, something some change, of course, would be in order. But I don't see this happening, quite frankly. Too much of a shock this war was. Too much of, a, of compassion I see in Western Europe among uh, average people. So uh, at a certain point, they probably would get, uh, grow wary of this war. But this point won't happen during this winter. I think 
the worst case scenario it would be at some point next year. Okay, so there is concern about the price of energy, the increase in cost of energy in Germany. We had a guest from Germany on the program three weeks ago who told us that it's already eight times as expensive as it was for her just over a year ago. But but I understand what you're saying, and I, I, I believe you're absolutely correct that uh, if there's going to be a faltering as far as support for the sanctions are concerned, it may happen uh, after the winter. So, Ambassador Sherba, in diplomatic speak, when you have the former president of Russia, Medvedev, uh, hinting again about the potential use of nuclear weapons, what do you hear? Well, first of all, I hear um, former president who was always distrusted by uh, Russian special services, by Russian army, by Russian military, who was seen as soft and too liberal and who wants to score with this crowd now because obviously it's, these are new times uh, in, uh, in, in, in Russia and um, these will be the people who will be in charge even more uh, than it used to be before. So this is the first thing I hear. And second thing is, uh, quite frankly, it's it's more uh, noise than the uh, than the essence because um, there was the um, there was a moment of truth uh, with regards to these you know loud uh, uh, big announcements by Medvedev uh, threats, and uh, this moment was uh, on August 9th. Uh, when um, a big, second biggest uh, Russian uh, air base in Crimea uh, uh, burned uh, to the ground. Uh, Ukraine never um, claimed this, but uh, many people thought that uh, clearly uh, it had to do uh, with uh, Ukraine uh, trying to show that nothing is of limits right now at this at, the, at this conflict. Uh, two or three weeks before that, uh, Medvedev said that if anything happens to Crimea, any kind of you know <coughs> uh, military attack, it would be the judgment day. I quote, I'm quoting him, the judgment day, and nothing happened. Uh, the whole. You know, all, all the propagandists in Russia were demanding, you know, strike, immediate strike uh, on Kiev downtown to kill Zelensky and his government. It didn't happen, uh, let alone, uh, I don't know, the judgment day. So um, it's just uh, a person who is not... That importance is trying to sound important and become important, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, read too much into it. Okay. So after six months, what is a typical day like, if there is a typical day? What is a typical day like for Ukrainian people now, particularly those within the range of Russian artillery? What's the day like? Well, it depends where you live. Uh, right now, uh, I'm uh, in Western Ukraine. Uh, I'm visiting. Uh, I'm meeting with my wife, that, who I didn't see for three months. Uh, she lives in Austria. I live in Kiev. We meet in the middle uh, in Lviv, in Western Ukraine. And life in Lviv, in Western Ukraine, is rather peaceful. You know, you, from time to time there are these air raids, but for the most part. 
they don't materialize in any strikes. Um, in Kiev, uh, it's, it's a little bit more tense. In Ukrainian uh, capital, it's a little bit more tense, of course. And you feel already, you know, the presence of uh, soldiers on the streets. Uh, people are trying to um, tend to their daily lives, to to go to work uh, and to, to um, you know do their groceries. Uh, there are men and women on the streets because uh, many women uh, immigrated and men uh, are not allowed to of certain age because uh, there should there can be a possibility that they would be drafted into army. So it's a surreal time, but not as surreal as it was in March or April when, for instance, a city like Kiev was uh, was basically empty. But of course, the hardest, the hardest uh, is the life of people uh, close to the uh, front line in Kharkiv, in Mykolaiv, uh, people who get shelled every day, and every day there are there are um, casualties there uh, among civilians, and nevertheless, <laughs> people somehow managed to, to live there. And to, to I have a friend of mine who has a pizza delivery in uh, Kharkiv. They're still delivering pizza. Um, so it just, it just people, people get used to, to everything, even to, to this process. Yeah, the human spirit. Uh, I have a minute left here, Ambassador. Ukraine's grain shipments to a hungry world are taking place. Uh, do you have any concerns that Putin may again block these shipments using the Russian Navy? You mean the grain shipments? Yes. Do you have any concern that, uh, that Putin will try to block them again? Well, well Putin, you, you, can, you cannot exclude anything, any craziness uh, when you're talking about Putin. But um, since um, how, how many? So, so since uh, early August, these you know shipments are going on rather smoothly. I understand that uh, Putin has uh, something of it too because uh, uh, he sells grain and uh, it's not sanctioned uh, in any way. Yeah. So he's um, making so he's making money. I, I, I'm not very concerned. No? The New England Journal of Medicine this week published a report titled COVID-19 Vaccines, Immunity Variants Boosters. So we have that to talk about with our guest. And then there's NASI, the uh, volunteer organization, scientific organization, medical organization, which has provided advice on vaccines during the pandemic. And according to Blacklock's reporter, uh, uh, NASI is now suggesting Canadians should consider boosters every 90 days. Dr. Neil Rao is an infectious diseases specialist, Halton Region, Ontario, assistant professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Health. Dr. Rao, good talking to you. Uh, let's start with, uh, well, why don't we start with this? The, um, the New England Journal of Medicine view that COVID is transitioning from hyperacute to endemic, which is what you told us on the air a year ago. Yeah, it's interesting to see this change finally happening. I think the problem a year ago is that people ignored the impact of natural infection 
as a form of vaccination, if you will. I'm not saying that we didn't have value for the vaccines by any means, but I think people thought that those who only had the infection were still vulnerable to reinfection, and that with reinfection, they would also be flattened by the virus, and that we'd see tons of people in the hospital because of this. But as we're discovering now, either the infection or the vaccine or a combination has really protected our population in general from the bad outcomes of this disease, despite all of the uh, hoopla you hear about the next coming waves or the next coming variants. I think we're much more protected than we were before. And the other thing that's happened is that we really can't get rid of this virus. One variant after another, it's unpredictable. But even with each new variant, prior immunity from a different variant does lessen the impact. It's not the same as 2020 when we were kind of virgin to this virus where very few people had actually seen the virus. Where do we stand? Let's not talk about vaccines for a moment. Where do we stand with vaccines, the effectiveness? And there is news of this new vaccine developed to take on multiple variants of COVID. I'm not quite sure how to say it. Is it bivalent? Is that the pronunciation? I know it was one of the Two different strains are contained in one vaccine. Basically. How does that work when we don't even know what the new variants are? Well, that's one of the challenges. So it's a bit like the influenza vaccine. We're always a bit behind the eight ball. This vaccine contains the original COVID classic, as I call it, the Wuhan ancestral strain that started this all in 2020. And it also contains the first of the Omicron strains. The problem with Omicron is that it, too, is a moving target. We're now into the fifth generation of Omicron with the BA4 slash 5 strain. And there may be other ones that are coming as well. I don't know how long a run we're going to have with the Omicron before we move to another Greek alphabet letter. Who knows? Or maybe Omicron is the dead end and we end up with more variants of Omicron. Who knows? But the problem is the vaccine is targeting the first of the Omicrons. And we know that people who have seen the first of the Omicrons after a number of months are still vulnerable to the currently circulating Omicron. So the bivalent vaccine is not going to stop this virus. But for a small group of people who are at risk of bad outcomes, this might be an advance. We're talking about long-term care, people with severe immune-compromising conditions, you know, bone marrow transplant, organ transplant, dialysis. Those people may benefit from this vaccine as a booster compared to the original booster we've been using, which is just a COVID classic strain. What do you make of uh, reports that NASI is saying that Canadians should consider boosters every 90 days? That one bothers me. That is a little bit like offering everyone an electric vehicle with a range of 60 kilometers. You know, it'll be range anxiety for vaccines, basically. You know, you're, 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 you're not even up to date, but, you know, you get your, the day you get the vaccine, you're already thinking about your next one. You know, I, that would be a problem at a population level. I think for some people who are vulnerable, this may be what we do. I also think we should place some faith in those uh, monoclonal antibodies. There's one called Shield, which could be administered, say, for six months, every six months, as an injection for some people. I think that could have better value than the vaccine strategy. But vaccines alone are not our answer. We need new types of vaccines. We're kind of reworking the same kind of vaccine technology, unless it was maybe a live vaccine that's attenuated, or unless it's a new kind of vaccine that targets a lot of the coronaviruses, not just the one strain that's around or a few strains that are around. I don't think the current vaccines we have are going to be the, the magic answer for this. But on the other hand, 
we're not seeing a big surge on the healthcare system, even with these latest variants. It's a very different picture from 2020. Can I read you something real quick mm-hmm. about vaccines? Yes. The third, it's very clever. The third dose increases immunity, so after the fourth dose, you're protected. Once 80% of the population has received the fifth dose, the restrictions can be relaxed as the sixth dose stops the virus from spreading. I'm calm and believe that the seventh dose will solve our problems, and we have no reason to fear the eighth dose. The clinical phase of the ninth dose confirms that the antibodies remain stable after the 10th dose. The 11th dose guarantees that no new mutations will develop, so there's no longer any reason to criticize the idea of a 12th dose. <laughs> Is that comedy or reality? <laughs> <laughs> it came from uh, from uh, at Roro Trader on Twitter. I thought it was very clever. <laughs> it's well written. You want me to send it to you, don't you? Yes. So, you know, we're into a carousel of boosters, and I think one positive thing I'm seeing that people are talking about being more selective. The other thing is we have to retire the vaccine passports and vaccine mandates and the idea that people are not free unless they have X number of doses into them. Because vaccines do not stop transmission. They are a personal protective measure. As I said to you on the show a number of months ago, it's an airbag, but it's not a collision prevention system. Employers and employees are caught up in a debate as employers across the country are expressing the expectation of a return to the workplace and employees in many cases not everybody but in many cases are resisting and expecting the right to work off-site or to continue to work off-site so what does employment law in this country say by the way we'll be opening up the phone lines on this Uh, after I speak to my guest, and I know some of you are going to find this objectionable, but my view is that employees who refuse to return to the workplace, if there are no extenuating circumstances, should be terminated, fired. Because to me, this kind of thinking is the end result of the participation trophy approach. You showed up, you were great, everybody knew you were great, and you were expected to be acknowledged that way. Uh Uh-uh. Let's talk to my guest, uh, Lior Samfiro, co-founding partner of Samfiro Tamarkin, LLP. You'll find them at stlawyers.ca. They have uh, offices in uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Calgary, Vancouver. And uh, Lior, good to have you back with us. How are you? Always a pleasure, Roy. Thank you. So employees in many cases are expressing a reluctance to return to the workplace, even though almost every other aspect of life is as it was pre-pandemic. Now, perhaps it's inflation, maybe the cost of gasoline time spent driving to and from work. And there's the belief I can work as well or better at home and I don't want to return to the office. But the employer, Lior, deems, in the situation that I'm asking you about, it is time for the employee to be at the employer's place of business. Is this a simple or a complicated issue according to employment law? Well, it is not a complicated issue, but there are exceptions, which which I'll talk about. And the reasons that you've mentioned in terms of the the reluctance to go back to work, are those are the main ones. There's also some concern that some employees have expressed about still being around other people regularly in a close environment because of COVID-19, the belief they may be safer at home. So let's kind of round this up and let's talk about how the law treats this. And, and for the most part, your views are correct. An employer is able to require their employees to come back to pre-COVID-19 work arrangements. So if pre-COVID-19, you were working in the office physically Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and during COVID-19, that changed. You were working from home, either full-time or part-time. Now that it's 
according to the government, safe to do so. You're able to come in. There's no restrictions in, in that sense. An employer can say, we're going to go back to the way things were. And if an employee says, well, no, I'm not going to do that, that employee can legally be terminated and will likely not even be owed any compensation, any severance. So that's the general rule. But as you know, with everything in the law, there's some details that may change that situation. So for example, if you, during COVID-19, you, uh, you moved, you moved away from the office uh, and your employer knew that, maybe you can encourage it to condone that. Well, that employer is going to have a difficult time to say, well, now we're going to make you come back to the office, even though it's not feasible for you because you moved away. We knew that. We said it's fine. In that situation, that employee may be able to say, no, I'm not doing that. And if the employer is going to terminate them, then, yeah, there's going to be a cost involved for sure. The other major exception would be a situation where someone was hired during COVID-19, has always worked from home, and the employer had never said that that could change. So that employee had expected to continue working from home. Well, then the employer can't just change things and say, now you have to come into the office. But again, that's only going to apply to those employees that were hired during COVID-19. But as you said, and I agree, the main rule, the main principle is that an employer can require employees to go back to work the way they worked pre-COVID. So uh, one, one writer here, Lior, what about a hybrid situation? So the employee has been working, let's say, three days at the office and two days at home, maybe most recently. Um, does existing employment law cover such circumstance where the employee says, look, uh, you're the one who decided on the hybrid model, and I want to keep it that way? No, generally speaking, uh, and it's understood that whatever happened during this global pandemic was a unique set of circumstances. It's a unique moment in time, and that cannot or, or cannot be imposed on the employer to be extended indefinitely. Now, in a situation where the employer had made it clear to an employee, well, that's going to be the new norm. Uh, we're going to have a hybrid model, for example, and the employee relies on that. Maybe they go off, buy equipment. Maybe they go off. Uh, you know, renovate their house to be able to work there. Well, in that situation, because that employer told the employee something, the employee relied on it, that employer is not going to be able to take that back necessarily. But if it's going to be a situation where the, it was understood that that's done during COVID-19, that's not intended to be forever, and the employer has never told employees to go out and rely on this situation being permanent, well, then, go back, going back to the normal, the general rule is the employer can say, that's done now. This hybrid model is done. Regardless of whether it worked effectively or not, an employer can go back to pre-COVID arrangements, even in that situation. All right. So at what point, given this scenario, when it's going to develop many times across the country, at what point does either the employer or the employee seek your, your advice and your services? Well, certainly an employee that's relied on their employer's representation about working remotely, and I've seen many of those individuals, they've moved, uh, they, they've uh, bought a, a new house to allow them to work from home, and now the employer has changed that. Well, that can result in a constructive dismissal, but certainly it's important to uh, understand their, their legal rights. There may even be situations where an employee, for medical reasons, they have a doctor saying that you're, for medical reasons it will be too risky for you at this stage, to work with others. And if there's a doctor supporting that, then that employee may need to be accommodated by allowing them to continue working remotely. It's important to seek advice. And certainly for employers, it's always good advice. Before you let someone go, whether you think you have good reasons or not, 
to ensure that you're on the right uh, on the right side of the law and ensure that you understand what financial liabilities may come with that. Okay, one more question, Lior. We're being warned because it's almost autumn now about new variants of the coronavirus making their appearance. Another major coronavirus outbreak may change the landscape for everybody yet again. Do you see uh, the possibility that because of these developments and what may yet come down the road, that employment law will have to be adjusted, rewritten in some form? Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that happened uh, during the pandemic that, that, you know, as employment lawyers or generally the law was not too equipped to deal with is how do you deal with this unusual situation where an employer may be forced to do things that are otherwise not legal, but they're not doing it because they're bad. They're doing it because they have no choice. They're doing this because there's this massive pandemic that impacts their ability to operate and changes the rules. So what does that mean? How do we balance employee rights and employer rights? So I think that we have to, you know, as a society and our courts and our legislatures to, to make that balance and perhaps even give employers in some situations some additional flexibility in unique situations. Right now, the law as it is, employers do not have a lot of flexibility, even in the face of a pandemic. And I think a lot of employers, certainly smaller business owners, may say that that's not, uh, not too fair. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 